morning, everyone. All right. Uh, well, this morning, uh, we are going to pick back up in our sermon series going through the book of Matthew. Um, we're going to be closing out chapter 12 of Matthew today. And uh, I got to say, Dave Anderson last week could not have picked a better theme for his, uh, his sermon and his seminar because uh, he was talking about the book of Jonah. And um, this morning we're picking up in Matthew 12, 38, where Jesus is talking about the sign of Jonah. Uh, no one planned it that way. Tim Goff has assured me. Uh, but uh, I guess God planned it that way. So um, great segue into this week's passage. So um, where we, we pick up today in chapter 12, verse 38, we're in the, the middle of this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders. Jesus has been doing these miracles, these great works, uh, uh, casting out demons, driving out the, the uh, kingdom of Satan. And these powerful men in this society don't like it. And uh, as we've seen um, in uh, earlier in chapter 12, they've accused him of work, having uh, worked through the power of Satan. And Jesus talks about how that doesn't make any sense. He picks that apart. And so now the Pharisees try a different tack, which is to... Uh, demand that he give them a sign. It says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay, this is not a serious request. Um, this is, uh, after all that Jesus has been doing, so obviously and so clearly in the sight of so many people, um, the, the issue here is not Jesus' credibility. The, the issue is the hard hearts of the Pharisees. And their hearts are exactly what he aims for when he responds in verse 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Jesus was tender with people who came to him with a genuine sense of need he did not play gentle, though, with pretenders and hypocrites, especially powerful hypocrites like, like these guys. Um, the reality was that the religious leaders didn't want a sign from Jesus because that would be an admission that they needed to repent and were themselves spiritually needy. But even as Jesus condemns the Pharisees, uh, he, he actually promises to fulfill their request. Um, he actually answers yes to their request. He says, but none will be given it, no sign will be given this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we have Jonah uh, fresh on our minds. 
we know the story. God called Jonah, the prophet, uh, to go preach to the wicked people of Nineveh. Uh, instead, he, he ran the other direction, gets on a ship, gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, gets spit out, uh, finally goes and does what God asked him to do, preaches to these people. And uh, much to Jonah's disappointment, they repent. They respond as, as, as God would want them to. Well, the Jews considered this, this episode of Jonah being in the sea, in the fish, and surviving that all to be a sign, a really important sign, uh, that he was a true prophet of God, deserved to be listened to. Well, Jesus says that something similar, albeit greater, is going to happen with him. Jesus says that he is going to be in the heart of the earth for three days. Like Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days. Um, when Jonah was in the fish, he prayed, he, he uh, gave this great prayer to God. Um, in Jonah chapter 2, he says in his prayer that he'd been hurled into the very heart of the seas and that he was deep in the realm of the dead. That's how Jonah describes it. Now, Jesus says that he is going to be in the heart of the earth for three days. So he's going to be buried, and unlike Jonah, he's going to be dead, dead, really dead. And Jesus implies he's going to come out. He's going to survive it. This is his first prediction of his resurrection. And... He says that this is going to be, this, this will not be just any other sign. In, in a way, uh, this is going to stand head and shoulders over all of the other ones. This is going to be the sign, in some sense, um, signifying who he, that, that he is who he says he is. So, Jesus doesn't actually deny the Pharisees' request. He actually... Uh, gives them what they're asking for. He says that there is one sign coming that will be the ultimate proof that he is the Messiah and indeed the greatest miracle in in history. So now that Jesus has, he's established that yes, all the, the proof necessary is, is being given and will be given, uh, he now really brings the hammer down on hard hearts of these men. Uh, verses 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus uses these, these two examples from the Old Testament to illustrate just how deep these Pharisees' guilt goes. In the 
first example, he stays with the prophet Jonah. So he's still talking about Jonah, but the meaning has shifted slightly here. And he says that these wicked, hated Ninevites are more righteous than you Pharisees. And that when the final day of judgment comes, talking to the Pharisees, you're going to be condemned. You're going to be doomed. You're going to be shown up by those wicked, hated Gentile Ninevites. So that's the first example. In the second example, Jesus recalls this story from, it's actually in two different places, um, almost identical accounts, 1 Kings 10 and, and 2 Chronicles 9, of the queen of the south, or the, the queen of Sheba. Uh, Sheba was this Gentile kingdom in uh, uh, southwest Arabia, what we now call Yemen. In the time when Solomon was king of Israel, his fame and his wisdom came to be known far and wide. And this foreign queen traveled uh, what was probably about 1,500 miles by road, hot desert road, by camel, there and back, to, to hear for herself if the reports were true. And I, I love this little phrase by Jesus. He says she came from the ends of the earth. There's a lot of meaning there. Um, and, and what happens? Well, the reports were even even more true than, than she had heard. And, and her response was to uh, glorify, more than Solomon, glorify God, glorify and worship the God of Israel. Okay, so, so what do we have in these two illustrations? Jesus uses these two examples of powerful, godless Gentiles, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, led to repentance by Jewish men. I would add two deeply flawed Jewish men. Uh, Jonah, as we uh, remember from last week, was disobedient, uh, self-centered, angry, prejudiced, just not, doesn't come across as well in, in the book about him. Solomon was, uh, I mean, despite being blessed by God more than we can imagine with, with wisdom, with riches. Um, his story does not end well. After writing three books of the Bible, he managed to lose God's favor through his vanity, um, his spiritual and moral compromise. You know, usually bad things happen when you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, um, you know, not quite God's design for marriage. Uh, but the point that Jesus is getting across here is that these people, these Gentiles, who were I mean, decidedly far and away outside the people of God, religiously, culturally, and in physical distance, they were able to hear God's message for them even through very imperfect messengers and obey that message. But these Pharisees who had all the privileges of uh, 
their Jewish heritage, their knowledge of the law. Um, if you remember Paul, a repented Pharisee, in uh, I think I think it's Philippians, talks about these privileges. He calls them all of his reasons to boast. Um, the Pharisees had all of that, all of that, and ye, and yet they had here in this scene the Messiah Himself in their midst, and they were missing it. They were missing it, and not just missing it passively. They were they were actively, uh, aggressively rejecting Him and His message. Uh, I would just add, Jesus also includes a subtle element of gender in his rebuke by including the Queen of Sheba. This was a, uh, a patriarchal society, and he's speaking to these men, and this, this would have added another element, another level of, of uh, offense. He's saying, this Gentile woman got it, and you men, you powerful men, you don't get it. You don't get it. But I, I hope you see here, um, right in the middle of Jesus' harsh words, there's this thread of God's grace. It's, it's not his main point, but Jesus, uh, he appears to say that on Judgment Day, uh, God is going to consider these, Gentile, these Gentiles to have repented and and be accepted into eternal life with him. And it's really, really extraordinary. Uh, Paul, again, talking about Paul, he tells uh, Gentile believers in Ephesians chapter 2, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This queen from the ends of the earth, and, and the Ninevites were far away across deserts, both physical and spiritual deserts, and yet God saw them. He saw them. And he, he reached out with this message of repentance. They responded, and he brought them in to his grace. And now, hundreds of years later, Jesus was thinking about them. And, and one day, when all people are judged, he will, it says, he's going he's gonna to stand them up. He's going to raise them up. He's going to give them dignity, give them honor in some sense. This is God's grace, God's big, big grace. All right, verses 43 to 45, Jesus gives this little parable that illuminates even more just, just how deep the Pharisees' problem goes. Jesus says, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order, then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So that, that last sentence there is key. He refers a lot in this chapter to this generation. Um, this, this probably means 
primarily the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders who he's talking to. But by extension, I think it represents all of the people who uh, heard his message and his ministry and refused to repent. And the point of this whole story is more about the house and its condition than it is about what the impure spirits are doing. The house here is Israel, or to be more precise, it's, it's uh, Israel's established religious practice as, as led by these, these uh, religious leaders. They were very good at sweeping their lives clean of all of the kind of big, stereotypical, uh, obvious sins. Big, you know the, the big obvious ones. Maybe, for example, the um, worship of the idols of the nations around them. Um, maybe big overt uh, sexual sin, things like that. And maybe maybe they replace those with a few nice things around the house to, to go with the metaphor. Um, you know, the, all the self righteous actions of the Pharisees, all their their add ons to God's law. They were like a couple pictures hung on the wall. But this was still an empty house because what was missing? God was missing. He wasn't there. All of their hard work, cleaning house, it was for nothing. It was it was wasted time, wasted effort because God wasn't there. The human being doesn't have the option to fix up his or her life, but live without God. We don't get that option. Uh, I, I think this is an important principle for Christian ministries centered around um, recovery from addiction, uh, whether it's drugs, alcohol, uh, sexual addictions, pornography, and any kind of addiction that it's not enough to simply stop the bad behavior. If you stop doing the bad thing, but you halt your recovery there, all you've done is create a vacuum that's waiting to be filled. And what will happen is either you will, in time, return to that addiction, or you will replace it with some different vice, some different sin, uh, whether that's a different addiction, like replacing alcoholism for, for drugs, or simply pr uh, pride, legalism, which is no better than that addiction you had at the first. Um, but this is, this is not just about addicts. It's not just about you know, the, the extreme cases. Uh, this principle applies to every single one of us. Human beings are not, cannot be neutral. We are, we are battlegrounds in this big spiritual war that is going on around us. We're either, and we're either growing spiritually or we're dying. I like how uh, one commentator put it, Reformation without regeneration is dangerous. There's your bumper sticker. Uh, Reformation without 
regeneration is dangerous. Uh, and one other from my NIV study Bible, my emphasis added, a life reformed but lacking God's presence and power is open to evil returning. The only alternative to being just a, a rotating rental house of sins, you know, new roommate every month, is to let, if I can borrow from an earlier passage in this chapter, to let the stronger one, from verse 29, come in and plunder you. Uh, Satan is the strong one, but God is the stronger one. And we need him to come in and take up residence to drive out the evil, the clutter, the uh, unwanted guests. Only he can do that. What we need is power. Power that you and I certainly don't have. I, I know I don't. There's, there's one and, and only one source of that power, and that is the indwelling Spirit of God. But, you know, God doesn't impart the gift of His Spirit uh, into our hearts against our will. He, he doesn't force Himself on us. Because uh, to do so wouldn't be grace. It, it would be a lie. Um, it wouldn't be love. It would be a mockery of grace and love. No, he, he respects our free will, and it's up to us to freely choose, to freely accept his offer to, to save us from our sin and, and come dwell in our hearts. And that's a one-time choice, but it, even for long-time believers, those who have uh, repented and, and believed in Jesus a long time ago, Knowing God's presence and, and power in our lives is something we have to continually seek after so that we don't, we don't fall back into those old patterns. Uh, this may seem like a tangent from um, the main points of my sermon today, but I really think it isn't. Um, there's something I felt convicted over the last few weeks to say. This is not only for the men, but uh, it is, more often than not, it is for the men. If any of you in the, the sound of my voice are in a silent, secret battle with pornography, maybe, maybe a battle that you've been losing for years, I, I want you to know that there is hope and there is freedom and victory available to you if you want it. Um, maybe you've come to believe that there is no escape, that this is just who you are, that you're just always going to fail in this area, that it's just inevitable. From the bottom of my heart, I'm telling you today that it is not inevitable. That is a lie from Satan that you've been told to keep you in chains. The truth is God has greater things in plan for you man of God. And I implore you from the bottom of my heart to reach out and get help. Um, sin done in secret will not be overcome in secret. It will be overcome out in the open, uh, in the light, in community. 
Um, there, there are resources, there are ministries, uh, there are other men who've, who've been there and, and found the path to freedom, not because they are any better, but uh, they were simply able to ask for help. I am one of those men. I am one of those. Um, I've been where you are, and I want you to know that there is a way out of porn. Uh, for several years now, I have met with a group of guys here in Yakima uh, each each Saturday morning. Um, we are not uh, we we meet at a another church here in Yakima. We're not affiliated with any one church. Uh, there are men there from a variety of churches, uh, and a variety of ages and backgrounds. I'm on the younger end, but we're a, a firmly Christ-centered, Bible-based group. We hold each other accountable, and and uh, we build each other up and encourage each other as as men of God. So, just wanted to put the, put this out there. If you are a man struggling in this area, and uh, st- if the statistics are true, many of you are, um, then I'm I'm talking to you. Consider yourself invited. Um, feel free to talk to me. If you don't feel comfortable talking to me about this in public, uh, my info is in the church directory, and it's on the screen. Uh, please reach out and get help. So, now you've heard me. You have no excuse. Now, back to our passage. Uh, speaking of needing help, uh, this is this is exactly what the Pharisees could not bring themselves to do or admit they needed because you see in this message of repentance that Jesus was was preaching was an offer, and it's the same offer to us today. He offers us an exchange, and in an exchange, by definition, you give something up. Um, and in this exchange, we are asked to give up our pride, give up our ego, give up our, our sense of accomplishment or achievement before God. If we let go of that, if we if we relinquish control of that to him, he offers us incredible blessing. And we'll talk about that blessing in just a minute uh, in the closing verses of this chapter, but the blessing only goes to those with a, a deep sense of their inadequacy. And even after we accept Christ, we're always inadequate. <laughs> You'll never be adequate. Um, these Pharisees rejected that message, and uh, they, they rejected God, and, and ultimately, for those who didn't repent, it would land them in, in hell, in, in eternal separation from God. They kept their pride, but uh, that is a bitter exchange. It's a bitter exchange. Well, enough about the Pharisees. Um, in the final ch- uh, section of Matthew 12 here, we see the alternative in that exchange. We see what's, what's available on, on the other side of that surrender of pride, and it, it really is wonderful. Verses 46 and 47, it says, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers 
stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So this is a slightly comical situation. Uh, Jesus is interrupted by his family. Um, but there's important truths here. Jesus' family may have traveled uh, all the way here, Capernaum, from Nazareth, uh, which is about 30 miles away. This is no small journey. And uh, we know from Mark's gospel that they were concerned about Jesus. If I can dip into another gospel here, it says they thought that he was out of his mind and they wanted to bring him home. So it's sort of like an intervention going on here. Misguided intervention, but um, the brothers were not yet believers at this time. And Mary, although she should have known better, she had been told by the angel Gabriel uh, who Jesus was um, and, and his, his mission. She may have been confused at this time or, or simply uh, overwhelmed by the disruption in, in society that her son was causing. Um, it, it may have been very hard for and, and disruptive for that family. Um, I, I would imagine having a child or a sibling or um, any, any close family member who is famous would be hard on, on any family, especially uh, if that family member is Jesus Christ. And also they, they may have been trying to um, bring him back to fulfill his culturally expected role as leader of the family, especially if as seems apparent, uh, if, if Joseph, the father, had died at this time, it's kind of a noticeable uh, lack of mention of him here, just his mother and brothers. So all of that um, would have made Jesus' response here all the more shocking to those listening. Verses 48 to 50, Jesus replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus dismisses the, uh, the message of this, this middleman, this, this messenger from his family who is standing outside, not coming in, to hear his message, standing outside, um, Jesus dismisses that and, and he pivots and he, he makes this extraordinary statement that he he actually has some obligations that come before those of his earthly family. At first, this might seem cruel, this might seem callous. It's really not. It's it's important to remember how actively and um, clearly, Jesus loved his family, his er earthly family. I, I think of uh, John chapter 19 when he's on the cross, dying in the middle of dying this horrible death, and he, he looks down and he sees his mother, Mary, standing there, about to lose her son, about to lose her provider in that society. 
he sees his disciple John standing next to her. He commissions John to take care of his mother from then on. There, there, there are uh, other examples. Jesus, Jesus was deeply concerned for his, his earthly family. However, he, he makes it known here that there are actually others who he considers to be family in a, in a deeper, fuller sense. Oftentimes we think of the family of God as being a metaphor for earthly family. It's actually the other way around. Uh, earthly family is just a metaphor, a little picture of the family of God, the lesser to the greater. And, and so I think there's actually a, a more important takeaway here than, than some point about mothers and brothers. Um, you see, these, these words of Jesus are not about the limiting or the uh, narrowing of God's favor. No, uh, far more. They are about the radical expansiveness of God's grace. The radical expansiveness of God's grace. It says, pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Pointing to his disciples. These guys, uh, these bumbling, foolish, spiritually dim-witted men, uh, most of them at the bottom of the social totem pole, fishermen, tax collectors, um, these guys, Jesus calls them brothers. He calls them family. And it's not just this select group. Jesus says, it's whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. The, the Jews thought that it was their genetic lineage, their, their DNA, which was what pleased God. But that was always wrong. God is not a, a slave to some human bloodline. His favor extends beyond all human boundaries. Uh, familial, racial, national, political, gender boundaries to anyone who will humble themselves, admit their, their total deficiency apart from their creator, and, and plead his mercy like the Ninevites, like the Queen of the South. And, and it's at that point that you are brought in from the cold into the, the, the true ultimate family, the, the family of God. And then, like in Jesus' parable, his warm presence fills that void in you. No longer are you a defenseless tool of the, the devil's schemes. You're, you're a son or daughter of the true, the true Father in heaven. Let's thank him and, and praise him for that today. Let's pray. Dear God, I want to thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you that it is not stingy. It is spacious. It is wide. It is deep. I know that it must be because it found out me. Uh, Lord, we, we need your power in our lives. 
we need your active, unrestrained, uh, fiery presence to fill us, or else we are we are empty and exposed. So I ask, Lord, from the bottom of my heart, that you would cover us all with your grace. Cover us all at this church, Lord, with your grace. In your good name, amen.